Take your Bibles and stand with me. Open to Galatians chapter 5. We'll read together the whole chapter as we wrap up our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Hear the word of the living God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of the living God, may he bless it in our hearing and our hearts 
this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may your gracious spirit come now and so work in us through the preaching of your word that your name is magnified in our hearts, that your grace is made to abound to us in Jesus Christ, that the sanctifying fruits of righteousness would be born in our lives, that, Lord, we would reject all of those things which world and flesh and devil are only too willing to offer up on the platter for us. Lord, instead we pray with thankful hearts and with much gratitude that we would seek to love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor. Oh Lord, we pray that as we Ponder Galatians 5 this morning as we seek, Lord, to understand the context in which you have given to us this glorious Spirit's fruit, that our aim would be to glorify and enjoy our great God. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to understand your word for ourselves, but rather have given us your Spirit. And so we pray, gracious Spirit, guide us now, the one who speaks and those who hear, that together we might worship you in the preaching of your word, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Well, come to the end of our series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we began a number of weeks ago with a consideration of the broader context for this consideration of the fruit of the Spirit. And we saw that there were two primary themes. One of the themes was uh, the vineyard theme that we see primarily in Isaiah chapter 5, where God himself is the one who plants the vineyard. God himself is the one who comes and expects fruit from the vineyard. When he came to his old covenant people, he found bitter fruit, not what was desired, of course, and it was a picture of Israel's apostasy in that time. But connected to this, of course, throughout the prophets, we have the promise that the Lord would come in the latter days, and Christ has come. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise that was given within the framework of the Old Covenant has been fulfilled in us, namely, that God would plant a vineyard in which He would cause much fruit to be born. This is the church. This is the people of God. We are called and even guaranteed by the promise of God to bear much fruit. This comforts us, especially when we consider whether or not we see the cultivation of such fruit throughout our lives. No doubt we see a lack of such cultivation in our lives, and it comforts us to know that just the same as we find in Romans 8, that God promises for those whom he's called, those whom he's justified, that he will sanctify them, that he will work all things together for our good, even conforming us into the image of his dear son. So that was one aspect of the historical background of the fruit of the Spirit. The other was the Exodus. And we saw that God would take his 
people out of bondage and he would bring them into the liberty of the sons of God and he would make them a fruitful people. Well, we see both of these themes sort of connect here with our studies on the fruit of the Spirit. We've seen at every point that the fruit of the Spirit is only born in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, in an answer to the promises of God that He's given to us in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ in the New and continues to carry out in our own lives. But we've also seen that the fruit of the Spirit is reflected in the character of the Lord Jesus Himself. We don't look to ourselves to figure out what that fruit looks like. We look to Christ, as in all things, to understand what that fruit ought to look like as it's being cultivated day by day in our own hearts and lives. But the one thing that we haven't done, maybe there's many more than one thing, uh, but we have not looked at the broader context of Galatians 5 itself. And so we began the service with a reminder that a text without its context is a pretext, uh, a pretext for all sorts of bad things. And uh, you've no doubt been subjected to this in your life. One example is in our text, if we have one outside of the whole chapter of Galatians 5 this morning, uh, we, we come to the end of the fruit of the Spirit text in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Uh, we find after he says self-control, he then goes on, Paul does, to say against such, in other words, this Spirit's fruit, there is no law. Now, Scripture twisting comes in all different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? And one of the things people love to do in our day and age is to take a text or a verse or part of a verse and isolate it for their own purposes. And what's done uh, with this passage characteristically and joined up with other passages to prove a point that's not really biblical anyway is to literally chop off part of the verse and to say there is no law. Now, what are they getting at? The argument would go something like this. In the book of Galatians, Paul is arguing that you can't add anything to justification. Therefore, in our life in Christ, there is no more existence of God's moral law. There is no law. But as we've seen, beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest exhibitor, the perfect exhibitor of the Spirit's fruit, was one who perfectly obeyed what? The law of God. Thus setting the pattern for us. If the argument is there is no law, the moral law is done away, then we can't look very well to Christ for our example of obedience, can we? Because He was the one who obeyed all of the law of God. Of course, with this is the fact that the moral law is God's reflection of his own character. And so he gives to us his law. Far from annulling his moral law with the coming of Christ, he rather strengthens and enforces it in our lives. But we need to look at the context now for this statement. Against such, the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. And we're led immediately to a consideration of the idea of liberty. The idea of liberty. Against such, the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. In other words, if we were to put it positively, you have been set free, you have been liberated unto the cultivation 
of much spiritual fruit. Now, the backdrop of Galatians 5 is important in understanding this liberty, this freedom, this liberation. And you see the way that the text begins right at the early part of chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Other translations, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We're going to look at four things as we walk our way through Galatians 5 here this morning and put a wrap to the series on the fruit of the Spirit. First of all, we're going to see in this opening verse the question, what is Christian liberty? We're going to ask and answer that question. What is Christian liberty? Now, we'll see some of the pitfalls of even asking the question. The things that are conjured up in our own minds are maybe not exactly the same as what comes from the Word of God. But secondly then, in verses 2 through 12, we'll look at a tale of two contrasts. We'll see two things that are just radically pitted against each other, put side by side so that we can see uh, these two contrasts. And then thirdly, uh, we'll take a negative turn on the idea of liberty. We ask in the first question, what is Christian liberty? In the third point, we're going to ask, what is it not? What is it not? And we'll see that liberty there is not license to sin. And then finally, we'll see in the rest of the chapter, as we close out, the two ways to walk and the two armies at war. The two ways to walk and the two armies that are at war. So first of all, let's ask that question from verse 1. What is Christian liberty? Now, I should probably ask you this, and I don't want to distract you with this, but... um, it's because I think the answer to this question is uh, one that conjures up all sorts of ideas in uh, not only various people in this room, but in the various denominational affiliations that we find uh, throughout the world today. What is Christian liberty? What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, Christian liberty? Well, some of you are already thinking of the perhaps unwise illustration that was used in the sermon last week. Uh, If you forgot or you weren't here, uh, it was an illustration uh, of something that took place between the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, and the American evangelist D.L. Moody. And now that I mention the name, some of you are smiling, you're remembering uh, the story. And as the story went, Moody went to see Spurgeon. Spurgeon preached in the Metropolitan Tabernacle that night. Moody made his way back to Spurgeon's office. Afterwards, he opened up the door. He was met with a plume of smoke. He thought perhaps the building was on fire. Okay, I'm taking liberty there. Um, Bad pun. Uh, The smoke comes out at him. He enters the room, and there is the Prince of Preachers. uh, Moody, having been completely awed by Spurgeon's preaching and the blessing of the Spirit upon that preaching, could not believe his eyes. As he looked into the office, there sat Spurgeon, having just preached this incredible sermon, and he's smoking his pipe. To which Moody immediately said, My dear Mr. Spurgeon, how can you call yourself a minister of the gospel and smoke? And Mr. Spurgeon, quick-witted as he apparently was, responded in kind, My dear Mr. Moody, how can you call yourself a Christian and be so fat? And that was the story. Well, this is what we sometimes think of when we think of Christian liberty. The liberty to 
drink or smoke or dance or play cards or go to a movie. These are the things that we want to think about, that we instinctively think about when we hear the phrase Christian liberty. And we talk about things like how much is too much or how far is too far. What's conjured up in your own mind when you think of Christian liberty? Well, Christian liberty, first and foremost, has nothing to do with, and notice, careful language, first and foremost, primarily, does not have to do with these questions of what can I do or what can I not do. The way that the Bible, and especially the New Testament, talks about Christian liberty is from the perspective of what we have been freed from and what we have been set free unto. These are the key categories. What am I free from? And therefore, what have I been freed to? And this dominates the biblical discussion about Christian liberty. So if we ask the question, what is Christian liberty? I hope that after this morning, you will, less and less, think instinctively and immediately about whether or not you can have a glass of wine or smoke a pipe or go to a movie or any of those things. You need wisdom for all of those things, by the way. And yet, I hope that our change, if there needs to be one, from that perspective will be to this perspective. What have I been set free from? What have I been set free unto? Now, let's answer that question. What has the Christian been set free from? First of all, the Christian's been set free from the law as a covenant of works. Now you think, wow, for that to be your first sub-point is a little thick. Uh, The children are already squirming. What do you mean the law as a covenant of works? You've been set free from the law as a covenant of works. Now this is language that uh, we get out of our confessional standards, and theologians have talked this way for a long, long time. It's good language, and children, it's not even that hard to understand When we talk about being under the law as a covenant of works, what does the law preach? The law preaches, do this and live. You have to do it personally. You have to do it perfectly. You have to do it perpetually, the three Ps. You do it perfectly all the time. That's the demand of the law. That's what it is to be under the law as a covenant of works. You have to obey God's law perfectly, what's the problem? It's impossible. You have been set free in Christ from that terrible burden, from the law as a covenant of works. Now, don't get me wrong. Romans 7, the law is holy, just, and good. Remember, we said reflection of the character of God himself. And yet, as it functions in this way, do this and live. Obey personally, perpetually, and perfectly. It cannot be done. And this is what we've been freed from. You think of uh, our next point, which is we've been freed from the curse of the law. This is really talking about the same dynamic. Galatians chapter 3, Christ has set us free from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this is glorious. You have been set free from that bondage, not only to sin, but the burden of the law, the fact that you cannot keep it personally. You can never satisfy the demands of 
the law. And as the hymn writer says, He has hushed, we sang it, the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. The law can no longer make its demand with regard to you because Christ has satisfied that demand in the place of his people. This is glorious freedom. This is Christian freedom, beloved. We've been freed further from the guilt of sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And we've been freed from all of this guilt of sin. We've been freed from bondage and dominion in sin. Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, and Romans chapter 6, really the whole chapter. We've been freed as well, beloved, from the tyranny of the devil. You think of that passage in Hebrews chapter 2. Christ came in order to destroy the works of the devil. And we've been set free as well from the sting of death. Beloved, you remember the triumphant language in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. What is one of the results of Christ's triumphant victory over death, sin, and the grave as he rose from that grave by the power of the Holy Spirit? It is this, that his people would no longer be subject to the ultimate penalty that comes with death. Yes, we still die physically. And yet, we will never be subject to the second death. We will never be subject to the ultimate price to pay, the judgment and the wrath of God, which is to come. And that's the last thing from which we have been set free, from the eternal wrath of God in hell. Now, beloved, when we think of Christian liberty, when we think of the freedom that we have in Christ, it should not begin with stuff, with things, with debates. It should begin right here. We are set free from all of the tyranny of the devil, the bondage that we were in to sin, the law as a covenant of works. Christ has stepped into our place. In my place we should sing, condemned he stood. And we are at liberty because of what he has done. But there's more. We have to ask the question, don't we? Kind of the flip side of the coin. You are free in Christ to what? We've seen from what we have been rescued, but what have we been delivered to? And this is the positive here. We've been freed or liberated in order that we might enjoy our status as the children of our Father in heaven. Now you think about how far away from that we are by nature. Children of the Father in heaven. The inheritors of the kingdom of grace in glory. No, we forfeited all that in Adam. And the whole rest of the Bible, as we've been seen in our catechism hour, answers that question. Who may ascend the holy mountain of God? Who may dwell in his presence? Who may enjoy life with God in covenant with him? Not the natural man. Not the one who is yet in his sins. Not the one who has not repented and believed. No, it is those whom God has set his love upon and called the children of the Father in heaven. But we've also been freed to 
take advantage of the access that we have to the Father. And you think about a text like Hebrews chapter 4 or perhaps Romans chapter 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have what? Access. Isn't that glorious? Hebrews chapter 4, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Even the Lord Jesus, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so what do we do because of the high priest that we have? Oh, we come boldly, of course, humbly, but we come because of his promises boldly to the throne to receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We are free to access the very throne of grace from whence all grace comes. But we're also freed. Notice the natural man. It's impossible, Hebrews 11 says, to please God without faith. But now, in Christ, we've been set free in order to obey, to honor, to glorify the God who set us free. And we do this with childlike love for our Heavenly Father by the grace of the Spirit which is within us. Well, there could be an objection at this point, I suppose. Someone might come and say, well, how can you be free if your freedom demands service to God? And you could make it even worse. You could go to Romans 6 and say, Paul actually uses the language of slavery. You were slaves to sin, and now look at the upgrade you've got. Now you're slaves to righteousness. I don't want to be a slave to anything. Oh, yes, you do. Because in your slavery to sin, you are in such bondage that you cannot move one inch toward the living God. You cannot profit from His grace. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus Christ has done in bearing our sins in His body on the cross is He has now liberated us, no longer in bondage to sin, but now entering the freedom of the sons and daughters of God in order to obey and glorify Him. In a word, the thing that was absolutely impossible for us in our sins, in our bondage, was we could never in any way, shape, or form glorify or enjoy God. But now, we have been set free. And part of that glorious liberty, yes, slaves to righteousness, is that we are now bound to another who has bound us to himself in covenant who has pledged himself, the great God of eternity, has pledged himself to his people. I will purify you. I will sanctify you. I will make you more like Jesus Christ. And so it's not that we've been brought into a relationship with God in order now to keep ourselves in that relationship by our works, to sort of, well, Christ purchased initial redemption, but I've got to now pay him back, or I've got to somehow make installment plan payments uh, via my sanctification. No, no, no. No, Christ has accomplished it all. He has perfectly obeyed. There's nothing left for me to do except to respond in the liberty of the children of God with gratitude in my heart for such amazing, lavish love and grace. And so we are to exercise liberty in all things. And here's the governing phrase. Good Reformation slogan, sola scriptura, according to the scriptures. But then there's another aspect of this, where we are told to stand firm and not to go back. We'll see 
abuse as we move through the passage here. And if you're getting scared that we're still on verse number one, uh, things will be disproportionate. But there's a principle here that says something like this. And and I, I think here, Paul, of course, has the Judaizers in mind and their abuses. They're adding to Uh, justification by faith, Uh, but we could also make many applications to all kinds of superstition and religion um, and so forth, but the principle is even though it may not be wrong to do certain things in and of themselves voluntarily, what Paul is warning us against in the use of our liberty is not to have our conscience bound by the doctrines and commandments of men. And so we shouldn't allow anyone or anything except for God in his word to impose a rule upon our conscience. But again, circling back here, we have to be able to say with Martin Luther that my conscience is bound by the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. So we've seen the answer to the question, what is Christian liberty? It is being freed from the tyranny of the devil, from bondage to sin, is being freed to the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Yes, slaves to righteousness, but bound to the God who has bound himself to us in the covenant of his grace. Well, secondly then, we need to look at verses 2 through 12. And here we see a tale of two contrasts. Now, the contrast, first of all, is going to be in verses 2 through 6, between faith and works. So you've got to sort of hone in on this. There's, there's pairs, in other words, two things. There's faith and works, that's the first contrast. And then there's a contrast between the cross itself and the Judaizers. Now the Judaizers, uh, we can uh, read for a very long time about what the Judaizers are. The fundamental error of the Judaizers, regardless of what else you attach to them, is that they fundamentally added circumcision to justification. And so, again, this is why Paul uses such harsh language, as we'll see uh, in just a moment, because they were compromising the very gospel. This wasn't some in-house debate between honest Christians or denominations, honest disagreements over things of secondary importance. This is at the very heart of the gospel, Paul says, and he contrasts it as a contrast between, number one, faith and works, and number two, between the cross and the Judaizers. And so in verse 2, Paul begins, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. In verse 3, you will be a debtor to keep the whole law. Verse 4, you will be estranged from Christ. And at the end of verse 4, You were fallen from grace. Now, this is some of the strongest language that one could imagine. Hence, not secondary debate here, but primary. And the primary contrast that's being painted is the contrast between faith on the one hand and works on the other. You cannot have an admixture of faith and works in the formula of justification. You are justified not by works of the law, not by faith plus anything else, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone through the grace of God alone. In verse 5, 
For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We see here faith and its fruits. Through the Spirit, not the flesh. We eagerly wait, not work. For the hope of righteousness, which is by faith and not works. This is the hope that justification points us forward to. Now, the Galatians were in grave danger because of the Judaizers' heresy. They were seeking to be, it seems, justified by the law. Now, Paul doesn't mean they're justified by only the law. This was the admixture problem. And so, yes, they were not denying, oh, we need Christ. Of course you need Christ. But you also need Christ plus. And this is, of course, the problem. Paul eagerly seeks that hope of righteousness by faith. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Where does the hope of righteousness come from? It comes from God's gift of faith. Abraham believed God and was accounted righteous. The same pattern you see in Noah as well before him. And we'll see some of that in our Catechism Hour even today. That Noah was a righteous man. And you know, we hear that in the Bible and we say, oh, well, you know, but Noah was still a sinner. Well, well duh, but that's not what the text is emphasizing. Noah was still a man who was in need of grace. Noah found favor. That's literally the word grace in the eyes of God. So that's the foundation. Of course it is. He was rightly related to God through God's covenant grace. And yet, he was a righteous man. He believed, and just like Abraham after him, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was the righteous man that entered into the ark by the grace of God. And it's the same pattern in the New Covenant And then finally, in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And even as we strongly assert that justification is by faith alone, we assert just as strongly that that faith is never alone. Faith is not a work that merits us anything or that is joined to faith in a way that merits something but rather it does work. Faith works. It has to. If it's genuine, it will live. That's why we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. He commands us to walk in the Spirit, and then he describes the fruit of that Spirit. If you are in Christ, this is what your life will look like. If you are in Christ, this is what your life will not look like in terms of the works of the flesh and that nasty laundry list of things that we see later on in the chapter. Well, that's the contrast between faith and works in verses 2 through 6. But now, verses 7 through 12, uh, we see the contrast between the cross and the Judaizers. And here we look at verse 7 and the beginning of verse 10. You ran well. Who hindered you? I, I have confidence in you in the Lord. You see Paul's pastoral approach to the Galatians on the one hand, but then, by contrast, His imprecatory, this is almost summoning a curse upon the Judaizers here. He says, in essence, their doctrine is soul damning. Verse 8, this view is not of Christ Jesus. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's what this theology was. It was leaven. And it was leavening the lump, not in the positive way that righteousness does, that holiness does, that the Spirit does, but rather in the way that tears down and condemns. And then we see their destiny 
Not only is their doctrine soul damning, but their destiny is eternal destruction. And you might think Paul was reminded of Jesus' words about better for one to have the millstone hung around his neck. But he who troubles you, verse 10, the second half of it, shall bear his judgment. And then verse 12, and this is a little dicey here as far as uh, PG-13, but I could wish that those who trouble you would even, some translations, emasculate themselves. And you notice the irony there. The whole issue is over circumcision and its role in the Christian life and faith plus circumcision. And Paul is saying, you know, if you're going to teach that, you've abandoned the cross. You can't possibly be relying on the cross, but you should go further, be consistent with yourself. You should just cut yourselves off. You should emasculate yourselves. And Paul here is using a biting sense of irony and even sarcasm here uh, with regard to those who have left off the cross in order to add circumcision to justification. And then Paul makes a, a sort of personal argument in verse 11. You know, Paul describes his preaching of the offensive cross. You know, if you were to preach in certain circles the cross plus circumcision, then you would cease to be persecuted. If Paul would have given in to their demands, that's exactly what would have happened. The Judaizers, he says, they, they preach an easy gospel. You know, you can take the demands of Judaism and you can wed them to the provision that Christ has made. And with this now, you've got an easy gospel. No persecution. You'll be just fine. The problem with it is that natural men hate grace. What do you mean the natural man just screams at every point? You mean there's nothing that I can do to contribute to my justification. We want to do something. We want to contribute. And especially as Americans, rugged individualists, we do not like to be told that there is nothing that we can do. There's no way in which we can contribute. No, that's offensive, isn't it? It's a stumbling block to the Jew and it's foolishness to the Greeks. Well, the third thing that we see, moving on quickly to verses 13 to 15, is what this liberty is not. So we began with the question, what is it? We answered that from the text. Now, what is liberty not? Or we might phrase it this way. What would it look like to abuse this liberty that we have so freely in Christ? What does abuse of that liberty look like? And if we look now to verse 13, we begin to have answers to our questions. For you, brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And in these verses 13 through 15, we see again what liberty is not. We're circling back to verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And now, this is not that freedom. So avoid this like the plague. He reminds us that we are free in Christ and all the glorious things that that entails, we've already seen. But then there's this warning, isn't there? We have been called to liberty, not to license. 
Now, the word license, children, you get in your life a driver's license, right? Uh, That's that thing which, in the eyes of the state at least, entitles you to operate a motor vehicle. Uh, You might get a marriage license. I think we would probably debate even more vociferously over whether that's just or not. Uh, But that's the state's way of saying that you're legally married, right? And so that's the state saying, hey, we, we now have and this is where we cough, right? We, we now have given you permission to go ahead and get married. Um, obviously, that's not actually what's going on. They think it is, but uh, maybe I'll go to prison for such a statement eventually. Uh, license, what is it? You can do this, right? So, liberty, in this case, is that glorious freedom to be in bonds to the living God. And it's glorious freedom indeed, even when we use the terms of slavery. But, We do not want to abuse that liberty by taking license. License to what? Not a driver's license or a marriage license. A sin license. Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? And you see the not quite compelling logic to that argument from the Roman church. You know, look, if if we see grace magnified as the trespass increases, then our conclusion is that it would be a good idea to live the Christian life in that way. And we should just say, hey, hey, if grace is going to increase, the more our sin increases, then obviously we should sin all the more that grace might abound. And what's Paul's answer to that? Yeah, it's strong. In the Greek, which is something like God forbid. May it never be. It's the flattest denial and rejection that you could possibly have. And so we're called to liberty, liberty to not sin, but to be righteous and to live righteously in Christ. And so in verse 13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now we've been over this ground, and, and sometimes we, we need to assess, and again, that principle that we saw with self-control, all things are lawful or permissible for me, but not all things are profitable for me. John Calvin uh, said this. He said, For as soon as Christian freedom is mentioned, some most wickedly corrupt the best things. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. And, he continues, on the pretext of this freedom, shake off all obedience toward God and break out into unbridled license. The irony, of course, of this license is that it leads to bondage. Now, what's amazing about Calvin's quote there is you would think that Calvin was alive in the 21st century to be able to utter such words. That the response to the freeness of gospel grace is to go and pervert it and turn it into a license to sin. So I've been set free from sin so that I can do whatever I want. Or I've been forgiven in Christ so that I can go on living like the devil. Now, maybe nobody says that with their mouth, but with their life, that is the broadest of churches in this world that we can see. We, we love to make that decision for Jesus to walk the aisle, to sign the card, to throw our stick in the fire. This is our religion, in the United States especially. And of course, you've heard, and I I misquoted, I actually attributed this to a different friend than it actually was, but some of you were here when our brother Phil Ellenberg was here. And back in the days when he was preaching, uh, he had the very sad occasion to 
uh, officiated at a funeral uh, in which the one who had died was the son of one of his congregants. And this was a young man who lived an absolutely intentionally godless, rebellious life. No love for Christ, no desire for anything of the things of God. If you wanted a poster child for this theology that grace leads to license to sin, this is it. And he died in the midst of doing that which he loved most. You know, sometimes we try to comfort ourselves when people die. You know, they're in extreme sports and a rock climber falls off the cliff. And, you know, we say, well, at least he died doing what he loved. Well, th- this was the exact opposite of that. This was doing the sin that he loved. And he died in the course of it. What a sad, sad occasion. And yet, after the funeral was done, the mother came to Phil and said to him, you know, my comfort is this, and handed him a decision card that had been signed when this young man had been a boy. And she said, my comfort is that he signed this card and he he gave his life, he asked Jesus into his heart, and so no matter what else he's done, and you see the problem, always half-truth, always half-truth. If truly saved from your sins, if brought from darkness to light, if given the new heart, if granted faith, then yes, you will persevere by the grace of God. You will come to the end and be saved at the last. But, but, the half-truth again on the other side was that you could live a life without reference to God and hate Him with all of your heart and call yourself His child. And it was because this liberty translated into his life as we should sin all the more. I don't even think he was sophisticated enough biblically to say that grace might increase. But that was the effect of it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Jude 4 shows us the ugly side of this, where Jude describes ungodly people who do what? They pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny Him. That's what this is. The sin all the more that grace might increase is sensuality, it's wickedness, and it's a denial of the gospel itself. We abuse Christian liberty. Robert Bolton tells us, one of the Puritans, in his True Browns of Christian Liberty, he says a couple of things about the abuse of liberty. He says we abuse liberty when we use it undutifully, when we deny obedience to lawful authority in things that are lawful. He says, secondly, when we use liberty to justify superstition. And he gave examples of the Pope's funeral and the veneration of the saints and other things like that. Thirdly, he says, when we behave as if liberty frees us from an obligation to obey and glorify God. Fourthly, he says, when we allow its use to deteriorate into abuse. And so we take even a good gift and we abuse it. We are abusing our Christian liberty. And of course, you could think about our Spurgeon and Moody illustration again in that particular application. And then he says, fifthly, and this is sort of a Romans 14 weaker brother application, when we cause 
grief to others. Uh, the weaker brother who is made to stumble in his conscience. And then at the end there of verse 13 and on into verse 15, we see this exhortation that flows out of this. It's not just, hey, don't abuse your liberty, but it's through love serve one another. And this is just to follow Christ. You remember the Son of Man did not come to what? To be served, but to serve. And how did he do that ultimately? He gave his life a ransom for many at the cross, beloved. And so that leads us finally to verses 16 to 26. Two ways to walk and two armies at war. And of course, the two ways to walk, described very clearly by the apostle as flesh and spirit. You walk according to the flesh, you walk according to the spirit. And so this flesh and spirit are not just two aspects of a Christian's being, they're characteristic of the two great ages or epochs in which the Christian lives, this present evil age and the age to come. Our citizenship is in heaven, and so we walk by the Spirit. If our citizenship were on this earth, if, as the book of Revelation describes, we were earth dwellers, that's a spiritual metaphor for those in rebellion against Jesus Christ, then we would be those walking according to the flesh. But secondly, being in the flesh and being in the spirit also show us two different periods in the life of someone who has become a believer. We might think of this as before Christ and in Christ. So we were alienated from God, we were outside of Jesus Christ, but now, by the grace of God, we are in Jesus Christ. Paul's favorite way to describe a Christian It's not Christian or even those of the way, it's in Christ ones. One author says the Christian belongs to the community of the resurrection order, but lives within the context of the present order. Even new life in Christ lived in the spirit has as its context bodily and mental existence, which has long been dominated by the flesh. There's difficulty, there's remaining sin because we live, yes, physically in this present evil age, while we are yet citizens of the age to come. And then finally, Paul's exhortation not to walk or live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, underlines the fact that these powers remain competitors for our lifestyle as Christians. And here's where we get to armies doing battle. And so there's this age and the age to come, flesh and spirit that wage war within us. And again, one writes, the Christian lives in a new sphere, in the new age. But this new order of existence is lived out in a world still under the dominion of the old. So long as this is true, tension, conflict, and struggle, those things they don't tell you about when you sign your decision card for Jesus, These things, tension, conflict, and struggle, are bound to be a leading feature, not just an occasional struggle, but a leading feature of the status of the believer and often of his or her subjective consciousness. The author goes on to walk according to the flesh is, in fact, but the breathing out of an atmosphere of spiritual pollution which has been earlier breathed in. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? 
you know, outside of Christ, that's what we do. We breathe the spiritual pollution of this present evil age. And the remnant of sin gives us that whiff of what we were in bondage to before. We still have remaining sin. There's still a battle that is waging within us between the flesh, between the spirit, the flesh being that which is opposed to Christ and everything that is true of the Word of God. The Spirit, of course, of the living God dwelling in us is the animating, motivating principle of new life in Jesus Christ. Calvin has wonderfully pastoral advice. He asks the question, for who is there who does not labor under one or the other of these sins? And again, he's referring to that laundry list of sins that uh, we see beginning with verse 19, the works of the flesh which are evident or obvious. He says, who among us does not labor under one or the other of these sins? I reply, Paul does not threaten that there shall be excluded from the kingdom of God all who have sinned, but all who remain impenitent. The saints themselves, he says, are heavily burdened, but they return to the way because they do not surrender. They are not included in this catalog. All the threatenings of God's judgments call us to repentance for which pardon is always ready with God. But if we continue obstinate, there will be a testimony against us, Calvin says. Well, how do we approach these things in our lives as we conclude? And I'm quite sure that these five R's were stolen from someone else because I don't like this kind of thing. But it impressed me so much that I wrote it down and I didn't attribute it to whoever should be attributed. So if you recognize this and you know, you tell me. First of all, R number one, we need to recognize the enmity, the hostility that there is between the flesh and the spirit. We need to be alert in the midst of this raging battle. We need to, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God in dependence upon God's grace. We need to also recognize the urgency and the magnitude of the conflict. This is cosmic conflict. Again, Ephesians 6. It occurs in the heavenly places. Well, what else is occurring in the heavenly places? We are seated with, united to Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but we also have our greatest warfare that occurs in the exact same atmosphere, namely that of these heavenly places. Bonar wrote that we need to pray that the Spirit would fill and anoint our life every single day. We need not only to recognize that there's enmity between flesh and spirit, but remember the new status that we've been given in Christ. We're, we're not in spiritual no man's land between the flesh and the spirit. No, we are the new creation, dominated by, filled with the spirit of 
the living God being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We have a new status. We are the new creation, as Paul says elsewhere, in Christ Jesus. The Father's love is ours in His Son. The Son's gift is ours by His Spirit. We need to further realize the calling that we've been given, which is to live by the Spirit and to not gratify the flesh. Paul put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify the lust thereof. Romans 13 and verse 14, a text that was instrumental in the very conversion of St. Augustine of old. We need to pray for the strength that we need by the grace of the Spirit to make no provision for the flesh, starving it out as John Owen wrote in the death of death and the death of Christ. And while we starve sin out, beloved, walking in the Spirit means we feed on Jesus Christ. We're about to come to the table. And there we will feed on the spiritual substance of our Savior. He will feed us spiritually with that which we most need. Thomas Chalmers described this as the expulsive power of the new affection. What's the best way to drive sin out of your life? It is by looking unto Christ. As you prize Christ, as you're grateful for the grace of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, you know, what's the way that we avoid sexual immorality, for example? By being thankful. Why? Because it's very hard to thank the Lord and be grateful to the Lord and praise the Lord while you are committing sexual immorality. We mentioned this last week with the fruit of the Spirit aspect of self-control. It's very difficult, and it's not just true for the sin of pornography, but for all kinds of sin. It's very difficult to harbor anger towards your wife when you have to go in five minutes and lead family worship. It's very difficult to yell at your children and be stewing over their rebellious deeds when you're about to open the Word of God before them. And this is by God's design. The Lord makes it very difficult for sensuality, for all kinds of wickedness to fester in the heart of one who is drenched in the praise of God. And so, of course, we need to ask, is my life drenched in the praise of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father who chose me, the Son who redeemed me, the Spirit who applied that great work to me and gives me comfort and consolation in every word of Jesus Christ. But then, beloved, we need to learn to respond sensitively to the Spirit. We've seen this already, being led by the Spirit. We're no longer under the law. In other words, it's bondage, it's condemnation. Sinclair Ferguson says the expression is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God and have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, as His sons. We know we belong to His family. We learn to put out of our lives everything that is not in keeping with the family lifestyle. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. We become sensitive to the Word by the Spirit. He's the Spirit, Ferguson says, of our Father and our Savior. We avoid anything, he says, 
that would bring shame on the family name. Our Father's smile has come to mean everything to us. His frown would be our greatest loss. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. This is the fear of the Lord, which Scripture tells us stimulates obedience and holiness. And finally, the actual last thing, the last R, reap what you sow. And this brings us into Galatians 6. For a couple of verses, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And you see the continuation of this flesh-spirit contrast and the war that's being raged. And another author says, the more we offer ourselves to the Spirit as seed to be fructified by Him, and the more we ask what will please Him, the more we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And the more we produce the fruit of the Spirit, the less nourishment will be found in the soil of our hearts for the weeds of the flesh. This agricultural metaphor reminds us of the importance of thinking long-term. You know, we, we want everything now. If I struggle with a sin, I just want it dead, want it eliminated, want to move on. Um, this is not the way the Christian life works, beloved. I mean, praise be to God when you have a sin eradicated from your life instantaneously. There are people that, when they're converted, have been in the throes of, of mass addiction, and they have seen that bondage broken in an instant. I would suggest to you that's the exception rather than the rule. With the new heart comes this warfare, this battle. And so, we need to think long term. We always ask this question, what will be the final harvest, the ultimate fruit of any thought that enters into my mind, this pattern of behavior that I'm entertaining. We need to trace the pattern of sin in the lives of the characters described in the Scriptures. We, we can't avoid noticing that they did not see far enough or think clearly enough about their decisions and actions. From Eve in the garden, through David on the rooftop of his Jerusalem palace, to Demas, the erstwhile companion of the Apostle Paul, they thought, what now? Rather than, what then? They saw with their eyes in terms of their own perceptions, rather than as God's children must learn to do with their ears in terms of the teaching of God's word. And finally, beloved, the battle in which we are engaged is ongoing, it's long, it's wearisome at times. And this applies to the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? It doesn't happen right now. It doesn't necessarily happen today or tomorrow or the next day. It happens over the course of an entire life that is lived as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, dominated by the Spirit, resisting the flesh and its advances with the warfare that is all around us. We might feel like we're making little to no headway whatsoever. But Paul urges us here, do not grow weary. These are long-term activities. We are sowing to the Spirit The final harvest may seem a long way off, even far out of sight. But beloved, we will reap in due season. And we must not give up. 
And so, beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that in him your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the liberty that we have been given so freely in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have set us free from bondage to sin, the condemnation of the law, the very thing that we deserve the most, namely the eternal wrath of God upon us forever. And you have freed us into the glorious liberty of the obedience of the sons and daughters of God. How we thank you, O Lord, for this glorious life of liberty that you called us to, that you have liberated us so that we might not engage in the works of the flesh, which are evident, but rather that we might cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. O Lord, give to us to depend upon your Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would work mightily in us, that you would give us, Lord, the long view on these things. Give us an eagerness in the present to put sin to death and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, give us that perspective that realizes that this work of the Spirit in our lives occurs over the entire course of our life. And so we pray that you would mature us, that you would conform us into the image of your Son, and that, Lord, we would have a reliance upon you and a gratitude for the amazing work of your grace to us in Christ. Bless and guide us by your gracious Spirit, we pray in Christ's name.